we're checking in with a, a college kid named Cole. Uh, this is what I did all the way back in college. You don't understand something. You just find some geeky kid who actually gives a shit about school. And uh, sometimes you find the right geeky kid and they know everything. So, Cole, I appreciate you reaching out to us. You're, uh, I'm going to label you as a financial wizard. He's already made millions in the stock market, investing his own funds. This kid knows everything. And you're here to tell me that basically everything I've thought of finances and what's going wrong in the markets is wrong. Because the real problem and the repo market, it all comes down to this euro dollar mischievous little thing that's never reported in the newspapers. Nobody knows anything about. So uh, intro us. Uh, so sometime back in the 50s and 60s, no one's entirely sure how it started. But the term euro dollar, which used to mean a, a time deposit of offshore dollars, basically some guy who has lots of dollars in England would go to his bank he would want them to be held there. So instead of a permanent checking account, he would say, I want them back in three months with some interest rate. And that was a, the time deposit. So that term in the 50s and 60s started talking about a lot more. Um, it started talking about the, the interbank lending and it started talking about the wholesale flow of offshore dollars. And because of this, the system expanded quite a bit. If you wanted a loan in US dollars and you would go to your bank and whether they had the funds or not, they would make the loan because they would be able to cover that short in the repo market. So it allowed a lot of uh, liquidity in the system. It allowed money to flow to where it wanted to. And no one really knew about it aside from a couple papers and economics journals that you can find to get through in an afternoon or so. And even they were mainly confused about its effects. And then it started peaking its head up in the 70s. One, it, it became a big factor in why they had to stop the gold standard for the US because the dollar market had grown way beyond what they thought. So when people started redeeming their dollars, there were way more people than they thought that had dollars to redeem them um, because everyone was covering through the, the whole short. So, so everyone's holding right. all these dollars. They go to try to redeem them. Not enough gold at the Fed. So that's it. Um, so and, let's, and, let's pause for one second because there, there's a bunch of stuff there. Um, so firstly, part of what you're explaining here is that when money gets deposited abroad, if I deposit, in other words, I lend to a bank in Europe 100 yeah. US dollars, right? So now, firstly, as you explained, that 100 US dollars, I don't have to actually hand them 100 US dollars. Mm -hmm. I can tell a bank, hey, I'm willing to take on the risk of lending this to them, and they'll just issue the $100, which, by the way, they probably don't have the $100, but they just say, hey, we're issuing you this credit of $100. Now, here's where it gets fucking crazy. In the U.S., if I deposit $100 into a bank, so there's a nine times capital requirement, mm -hmm. so that, that essentially, let's just keep the math simple, they're allowed to lend out $100 for every $10 that I put in. But now when you transfer that money over to Europe, well, they're not under our jurisdiction whatsoever, so they can leverage that, I don't know that they do, but theoretically 100 times X. They can take that $100 yeah. and now lend out $10,000 because they're not under the same capital requirements. So what you're describing is that so much money was getting fictionally created, supposedly being backed by U.S. dollars, that um, as people were coming back to try and redeem, there was more dollars in the system than even the Federal Reserve had printed or thought existed. Exactly. Yeah, there was a massive short, and because of that, a lot of massive long positions in the U.S. dollar, and everyone in those long positions was starting to get uh, realized that something was up and because of it, we're all trying to redeem. And this is one of the many things that forced the gold standard to be broken because the but dollar now, world is so much longer than the Fed knew of it. 
Now, but in that world, you're describing because I'm I'm assuming in the 70s it wasn't all that digital. So you're probably looking at what would be the equivalent of I'm holding a bond that was issued to me by a bank. It's almost like a commercial bank paper that says it represents X amount of dollars. But then wouldn't there just be in the same way once the you know they realized hey we can't like redeem it would seem to me like the actual redemption of physical dollars I, like in other words I, what I'm trying to say is I would think that those those bank deposits would go bust because everyone would realize that these banks are insolvent and they're lending you dollars that don't really exist and so your dollar gold system would be healthy but you would get rid of all of those fake deposits for dollars that you know were never actually backed well, that's option one. The other option is that you just say no one's allowed any gold, right? And that's what they went with. So because of it, you, you were still able to pay out in dollars. You just couldn't pay out in gold. And so now you're holding these notes that don't really have any intrinsic value, whatever intrinsic value means. And it continues to function somewhat. So so now, you had your... In your opinion, if it wasn't for the euro dollar... Then when they did the Brennan Woods and got rid of the gold standard, if it wasn't for the euro dollar, we could have stayed with the gold standard. Like, is that the real thing that like the orders of magnitude there or not so much? Uh, from what Jeff Snyder, who this all comes back to, and I don't know if you're going to touch on that at the beginning, but um, he thinks it's, it's half, maybe less than half the, the typical story of debt spending in the Vietnam War and more than half the Eurodollar system expanding money to such a level that it couldn't work. And part of that's shown through uh, questions where the Fed was trying to forecast dollar demand. So they built up all kinds of models and they kept forecasting and no matter what, they were short. Or, or the, the real forecast was always greater than the uh, ended up uh, realized dollar demand. No matter what they did, no matter how they changed their model, they would forecast some number and real demand never met that. And it's because they, it, it was met through the repo market. It's because it was met through this offshore market. It's because there were all these different ways of handling the dollars that didn't involve typical dollar demand. Yeah. So in other words, what you're describing is that there's so much um, derivative product of the dollar that for the rest of the world is functioning exactly like the dollar. Because at the end of the day, currency is a function of if you have confidence that other people are going to accept the currency. So if you've got, <laughs> let's say you have product number one is the U.S. dollar, and then product number two is essentially the euro dollar, which is a derivative of the U.S. dollar, but it's pegged exactly to the value of the dollar, and everyone essentially will accept the euro dollar and exchange it perfectly for the dollar, no questions asked. So, yes, because as far as they're concerned, they are the same dollars. thing. And right. they were more or less dollars up until 2008, which caused further issues because now the Fed regulated the movement of offshore versus onshore dollars and foreign banks couldn't use the Fed the same way that, that local banks or regional banks used the Fed. So that created further issues. And, and as part of the. Because they couldn't just swap it out right away. And so yeah. when they could swap it out right away, your derivative product was equal in value to the original, whereas when all of a sudden there's not a perfect flow of being able to exchange it, now the derivative product is less valuable because it's not as easily exchanged, which would well, also explain- It's the, not a, yeah. a less or more valuable. It's, uh, so the local price, the, the Fed's price is all fixed by Fed actions in place. Right. So it's tough to get a lot of movement on that. The same isn't true of the foreign dollar market. So it can go very high, it can go very low. It depends on what current dollar demand is. So that's where you get all kinds of swap spreads and TED spreads. And these are all 
basically looking at the difference between a U.S. price of something and a foreign price of something. Um, it's part of why they're switching from, from LIBOR to software, because LIBOR looks at the interbank rate, except everyone's trying to pretend the interbank rate doesn't actually exist and isn't any different than the local rate. So they're switching it to software, which is repo-based, which is supposed to better reflect what the Fed's actually able to take control of. Now, in just without knowing much about LIBOR or, so, or SOFR, I would think that even the banks and all like these different people competing over the prices, you would end up with a better um, rate difference. Wait, okay, let's take a step back. Well, firstly, so I would say that the SOFR model, which in other words sounds like the Fed is trying to better have control even on the foreign reserves that are backed by the like that are being backed by the U.S. dollar, they want to be able to control the value of money. I would think the other system would at least be better at price discovery between the fluctuation, I guess, between currencies. But now what you have to explain to me, so the LIBOR, I know that the LIBOR is like the fundamental interest rate of the world that everything's based on, and it's from the yeah. London, whatever. I, I, you got to explain to me what it is. So, so the key there is it's the London interbank overnight rate. So right. it is the euro dollar rate, more or less. It's the price that banks pay each other to borrow money. Right. So if that is below the Fed funds rate, then one, it confuses all of the Austrians who say that uh, the interest rate should be a lot higher because the, the free market interest rate for the dollar is lower. And the reason that this difference has occurred is because they're not properly pricing in the massive short cover the entire world is going through right now. Now, when you say short covered, you got to explain to what you mean. Okay, so so if uh, if you're shorting Tesla and the price starts to go up, then you have to buy it. If everyone's shorting Tesla and the price starts to go up, then everyone has to buy it. That causes right. a spike. Okay. So if everyone's short the dollar and it gets away from them and starts going up a little bit, for example, because the entire financial system melts down in 2008, right? And everyone wants dollars. Everyone's trying to buy them at the same time. This drives the price up. Then QE makes everyone think that the, Fed, uh, the Fed's printing money. They're not exactly. They're kind of printing money, but it gets frozen. So they're printing frozen money that doesn't really help anyone. Because um, it just, and to explain that, because what's going on is the idea was, hey, we're going to give it to these three banks and these three banks are going to lend it out. What ended up happening, though, is those banks had um, some problems with their balance sheets that they essentially needed to keep that money in order to meet reserve requirements and be solvent. So yeah. from an Austrian perspective, the inflation, from the Austrian perspective, once money's printed, you have inflation. What happened in that case, though, the inflation remained on the bank's balance sheets because they never let them let the money out of the banks. So yeah. now what you're basically saying is that dollars ended up going up in value because everybody needed needed more dollars. The Fed does QE, but that dollar doesn't actually, you know, the money multiplier never happens because the banks never lend the money out that was supposed yeah. to kind of filter into the system. And it's also that with various regulations and with uh, basically the, the new trepidation that the banks had to lend to each other because there was a headline event that showed it was riskier than they thought, it throws it down. So it was a system that functioned because all of the banks were always talking to each other. So it was highly, highly networked. Um, it required things to run smoothly. And the second that starts to break, then once one piece of the system shuts off, then no one trusts it anymore and then it just slowly dies away. So that's uh, if you look at the number of banks that participate in uh, this corridor lending system, where it doesn't strictly go through repo and it doesn't go through the Fed, just banks talking to each other and, and payments pass through. It's all died off, especially the big banks in the U.S. 
each one of them has, has curtailed their uh, corridor payment processing over the last decade or so. Okay. So once again, a lot of this is over my head. I'm kind of taking this uh, the way I read Stockman's books, which is sometimes you read things and you get the, like you hear the words once and then you read them again, you kind of fill in some of the blanks. And then three months later, you keep hearing them, you kind of get how it all works. So that's the way I'm trying to absorb this. And I recommend for you, anyone who's listening to this is kind of lost. I suggest listen, move forward. And as you keep reading about these things, you'll start kind of filling in the blanks and getting the full picture. Now, what's crazy about this scheme um, is there's a couple elements. One is, let's just firstly talk about the mortgage crisis that happened in 2008, because it seems to me like part of what's going on here is that a lot of the collateral that banks and these financial institutions had that they were kind of backing up currency against is gone. And that's permanently gone. Those are like there are losses on the books that haven't quite been realized and that, like, it, so in other words, there's like been a shortage of collateral all the way since then. So it seems like some of the shortage that's happening now is just systematic to the fact that back then you had inflated housing assets that you know haven't quite been stricken from the books. So the, I think the bigger part is that everyone now knows that they're risky. So it's before they could pretend. So you right. could get a, a ten times loan to collateral or whatever the the multiplier was exactly back then. Now everyone knows that it's risky, so you can't get as much money per piece of house, basically, as so they that, used to. But that's what points to the systematic issue that there isn't actually enough even th – this is all derivatives. But like even in the world of derivatives, there's not enough like good assets to back up the amount of money that they're trying to move around in the system. And so systematically, firstly – and then we'll start unwinding why the derivative thing makes no sense and it fucks over everybody other than the banks – but even within their model, which needs to always expand, like in its in its fictional, the fucking der derivative products, so you make up what they're tied to and what this is tied to. But since that loss of what we're saying is the collateral, they always needed to assume, like assume, let's say, those loan values at the max in order for the system to be afloat. So this is this is a systematic all the way back to the fucking housing bubble that still hasn't sorted itself out. Yeah, yeah, th there was collateral loss to. There was at one point enough collateral for the system to function properly, and but it was fictional. It was a, it was a, it was a bubble. Uh, yes, so, so it, a bubble it, it was price. it was a bubble. But the the important part is just that. So even if it weren't a bubble, like even if everything got paid appropriately and there was no blow up in two thousand eight, but everyone in the world realized at the same time that housing and mortgages were a little riskier than they thought and there was a downgrade in the credit and every payment was made the whole time, then even though the number of pieces of collateral out there are still the same, because the risk is higher, then the multiplier that you get on each piece of collateral in loan values decreases by a lot. So, and then aside from that, the problem is made worse because you don't only have money multipliers on the liability side through the actual cash, you have money multipliers on the asset side. Because if I have a US treasury, then I can lend you my US treasury and then I use the guarantee of your returning to me the U.S. Treasury in the repo market and you use the actual U.S. Treasury in the repo market, except then you can also lend it to someone else. Right. And so through the asset side, you have one multiplier, then through the liability side, you have a whole other multiplier. And then you're built with this like spiraling exponential money multiplier disaster. Right. That once so it gets now, tripped, it just right. gets it's so like now, dropped 
now we got to take a look at just why fundamentally this is insane. So if you take uh, the libertarian perspective, and I think the one who best simplifies this is Ron Paul and end the Fed, banks basically have the exclusive right to counterfeit money. The reason why I can't just print $100 bills is because we all understand it cheats the system because now your money is worth less because I printed a $100 bill. A bank is the one institution that can essentially print $100 bills. If someone deposits $100 into the bank, they're now able to lend out $1,000. they have just printed $900. That was $900 that didn't exist that they get to create. Now we got to expand this picture a little bit and understand what's so rotten about the Fed. Firstly, is that they're all able to kind of inflate money in collusion because no one's at risk of going insolvent because they're backed up by the Fed. So in other words, they don't need to compete with each other. They don't need to worry about ever um, there being a run on the bank because they've created this government institution that it doesn't matter. It's going to back them up. So, okay, fine. Now we've got this institution that we say it's so important that banks exist and it's important that they're able to create more money than actually exists in the system. So we're going to make sure that they're solvent. Uh, and in return, we're going to back them up, but they can only leverage themselves at 10 to 1. Let's just keep the number simple. They can only leverage themselves at 10 to 1. But then they pulled this fucking scam where not only are they leveraging and making up bullshit money at 10 to 1, they're taking that money and then they're depositing it abroad where they can now expand it to 100 to 1 or whatever the fuck it is. So the point is... This is an insolvent system in which banks that want as much debt in the world as possible because they get paid back in real dollars. All the real dollars that come in, they want as much debt out there as possible. The more debt, the better. It's not just that. The more money that they put into the system, the more prices can go up. So the more that they can indebt all of us because in order to do anything, like you need to take on debt. It just becomes the status quo. The only way I can open up a business, everyone takes on debt and the debt's available. So you just got to understand how how fucking evil this system is Whoa. that the banks are guaranteed to win and keep this it's an insolvent system that is designed to be insolvent this amount of money does not exist in the world if there was a private banking industry not being backed by the fed you would see these players go under because there would be runs on them but since the starting point is the fed and they are backed up they never go under and then they abuse that by not just obeying the rules of the 10 to 1 ratio, but by going to abroad and totally fucking blowing up the amount that they're allowed to essentially uh, uh, count. In. Well, so if you are a bank, though, uh, and you have the guarantee of the Fed, then this is how you would act. So it's evil, I guess, except it's also just many mistakes. And I see the whole thing is just layers of mistakes and a lack of information built up because the banks didn't want the whole thing to fall apart. The banks make more money with high interest rates than they make with low. Um, it's just this accident that happened because certain banks had to deal with certain problems at a certain time. And that solution ended up being a solution for a bunch of other problems, except no one told the Fed and no one told each other. So it got way out of hand for anyone to realize. That, that's more of how I see it than of course, I hate the Fed as much as everyone, but at I this thought, point, uh, it, it, that's interesting to me because I actually thought that the low interest rates um, favor the banks because it gives them like basically access to more capital from the government. Whereas I guess if if the interest rates were higher, even though they're always like 
kind of capturing a spread they want fast and easy money because then they have like they get more like they get more initial money from the fed when it's fast and easy whereas if it's expensive even if they're capturing a spread i guess there's still like if they can get money from the government at zero and lend it to us at three that's still a 300 percent increase let's say they're getting it from the government at three are they really able to mark it up to six i don't know maybe but that, that, I'm more posing that as a question that I always thought that the fast and easy money, because they get it first, they prefer the low interest rate structure. Uh, it's, I think, a little more complicated, like, like even just from a market's perspective, banks always take a dive when interest rates get cut. Um, and you, that's unusual for, for equities more broadly, because the multiplier is blown up when you cut interest rates. Um, and I suppose it's possible that all of the financial institutions experts don't meet that. But I think that the typical wisdom of the spread generally works, especially when you have the repo market and securities lending, which allows them to take a 10-year treasury and make tons of money on top of it, not just what they are already getting paid in 6% or whatever it would be at the time interest. So they're definitely not happy about it right now because it isn't functioning properly. They have lots of money sitting on their balance sheets that they can't use to make any money. There, there are all kinds of opportunities that used to exist in this uh, payment market and, and corridor processing that they're not taking advantage of now. There are risk-free arbitrage opportunities in uh, the swap spreads and all sorts of other things that they can't take advantage of because of certain regulations. So the banks, this happened by accident and now everyone's trapped because no one knows what's wrong, um, including the Fed. So again, hate the Fed, think the Fed shouldn't be around. But even if you grant that the, the Fed should be doing something, then having these two parallel dollar worlds, one of which the Fed thinks it knows and thinks it's in control of, and one of which it's never heard of, creates even more disaster because they start working against each other, with each other sometimes. They're just two entirely different planets that are only kind of associated. And just to kind of build on that, the euro dollar system is exponentially larger than yes. the dollar system, which is kind of a mind fuck because you thought, hey, there's this thing that's too big to understand. And it's the relationship of the Fed with the dollar. And then all of a sudden you realize like, oh, the Fed's like a little nothing compared to what the banks are doing with the euro dollar. Yeah, exactly. And which is why the, the dollar is so important for, for world growth. If, if the dollar is weak, then emerging markets can buy dollars. If they can buy dollars, they can buy commodities. If they can buy commodities, they can build stuff and sell stuff, right? Right. If that's not the case and you have a strong dollar, then the emerging markets completely fall apart because half their debt's in dollars too, right? So, so you go from a world where you can borrow dollars for cheap, relatively, and use them, to every single dollar or every single whatever you have that you print has to now be used to buy up dollars to pay off your dollar debt. So, all right, one more question, because I, I saw this. Uh, I like this guy, George uh, Reisman, a lot. He, I'm a big fan of his. I don't know if you ever read, uh, but he was uh, I, I was I was saying at the beginning of this, it, like, how do we not at some point get hyperinflation with all the money that is being printed? Right. But then people look at it and they go, I don't know, there seems to be unlimited dollar demand. And part of the reason why there seems to be this unlimited dollar demand is because there's 
a substantial amount of debts all over the world that are in dollars. And like you just explained, it's because we blew up this fucking euro dollar system. And basically because, well, let's say it this way. Since the Fed was printing the most money, right? Then the banks were able to money expand what that is. And they're able to offer the most debt. Now, if they're able to offer the most debt and people are most like taking that on, they also got to pay back in dollars. And what happens there is you don't really want to sit in other currencies because then you end up with risk that like even if you think, for example, Bitcoin's going to do amazing. And I have this like with my own taxes. I don't want to take cash that I need for my taxes and put it into Bitcoin because even if I'm right, if Bitcoin comes down in value when my taxes are due, I'm fucked. I have a debt to the government in taxes. And even though I think Bitcoin might be the better the better asset at the end of the day, I got to pay them back in dollars. If my timing's wrong, I'm fucked. So all these other people, even if they're better assets, they currently need dollars in order to finance their debt. So what's interesting about that is, does is there so much dollar demand in the universe, basically, that we don't end up seeing inflation? Now, what Reisman argued was that you saw the same thing uh, in Germany during the episode of hyperinflation. You could have looked in and said that the demand was only growing, but the reason for that is because prices were fucking skyrocketing. So, of course, people needed more and more in order to fill up their barrels to get bread. So, I know I just threw a lot of information, and this is fucking complicated shit, so I'll let you take it from there. And you got your dads looking at us, but it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's both sides, right? So, yeah. there's demand and supply. So, it's whichever one is growing faster than the other. So, the supply of dollars, especially locally within the U.S., is growing. It's just that doesn't really matter right now because the demand is so high, not only from people trying to cover debt, but also from people scrambling to get out of uh, securities right now in order to wait for the next drop or whatever they're doing. So everyone in the world wants dollars at the same time. And just because bank reserves have gone up some number doesn't really matter compared to the rest of the dollar system. So the, the, the other part of that is that in 2008, the expectation is that there would be inflation. Everyone was calling for inflation, except for uh, very few, which is different than what's happening now, except at the time, lots of people were calling for inflation. So Europe and every country in Europe and every country in Asia and every country in South America and every company in all of these countries goes, oh, there's going to be inflation in the US dollar. Why don't we all issue debt now? And when there's inflation in the next 15 years, in the next 10 to 12 years, which is where we are right now, it's going to be very easy to get the dollars because there's going to be all this great inflation and we're going to be able to pay it back. And that just never happens. Right. Well, just to add one more uh, piece of this puzzle, and it's just another way that we kind of are being robbed in a sense, uh, is that if they didn't print, okay, let's say there's exponential dollar demand because the banks lent out way more dollars than could possibly exist. So what would happen if the Fed were to not come in and say, hey, we're going to give you guys all these dollars Let's just say the Fed said, no, you guys fucking overextended. We're not giving you these dollars. So firstly, if dollar demand in the world is actually that great, all of a sudden, all the dollars that every American held would be worth a lot, would appreciate massively in value. Yeah. Which also, I, I, I like, I, I know you could also say, well, that's a, defl that's a deflationary event. But on the same note, you would have to realize interest rates would skyrocket like crazy because all of a sudden people are willing to spend a shit ton of money because they really fucking need those dollars. Now, that's interesting. I'm not saying that there wouldn't be a massive cost to that. But one, you would get rid of a lot of bad actors. You get rid of banks that overextended themselves, industries that are not actually that critical. 
And on the flip side of that, anybody ruined China, which is the whole side point. But they'd be gone, right? Because right? they they, they need dollars that, and they also hold yeah. treasuries, right? So if the the interest rate on the ten year treasury drops, then that crushes the value of that tre- those treasuries, even if they do go to sell them, which they won't. But if they're desperate and they need to sell them, and you see a ten percent decrease in the price of the ten year treasury, that's, that's panic that's for China. You're fucking over Americans on account of emerging markets in China, where all your 65-year-olds here saying, hey, we got to get them their social security, this, that. Any 65-year-old with savings, if all of a sudden the interest rate went up to 10%, they'd have money for the rest of their lives. And if their dollars all of a sudden were worth like just so much, you know what I mean? I mean, it's the classic thing where you're pitting savers against uh, borrowers. Yeah. But like, this is that, this is that concept times a thousand, but your actual borrowers here are fucking other countries. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like we're, 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 in other words, we're bailing out like small foreign countries on uh, instead of allowing us to have an appreciation of dollars, which would b- basically benefit every single worker who's currently being paid in dollars. Yeah. So, so the there are a couple like nuances in that that I think are kind of interesting and make it a little more complicated. One is you definitely touched on the fact that. Most Americans are highly levered already. So strong dollar doesn't help people with credit card payments. So, so it goes to like, I don't, if you're trying to benefit a certain group with policy, then it probably isn't going to work. So who knows how that would play out. Um, also, because companies in the US are currently so levered up, the Fed is doing what I would rather them not do and choosing to keep these companies running instead of letting them burn it. Right. Because um, my model of the economy, and uh, I think it's mostly an Austrian model, is that by far the most important part of the business cycle is the crash, the end, because that's when you churn out all the bad. Right. Um, and if you try yeah. to stop, yeah, if you try to stop that from happening, you get the Great Depression, you get the lost decade in Japan, you get the last 12 years. That's what happened. We tried saving something, and because of it, everything's still around. So we never got the boom because if you have every single smart financial person still working at the big bank, for example, then no right. new product comes around. No entrepreneurs get spun out of that. Like you, Google, don't, have any, like you don't have any innovation because all of the th- actors that were bad and didn't know how to make good decisions, all the capitalism is – is rewarding people who are good at forecasting where goods and services should go with more capital so that they can continue to do a better job of allocating resources. That's it. It's almost like you start looking in those terms and it's fucking spiritual where some people are better at predicting what goods and services people will want. And so they're rewarded with more capital so that they can get more goods and services to the people that will want them. But if all of a sudden you, you bail out the people who make these bad investments, they make bad predictions about the shit that people will want. Well, then all you have is a more powerful person 10 years from now who's continuing to, to invest and try and get a shit that we don't want. You know what I mean? It's like, almost yeah. look at it this way. If, if you literally had a dude on the corner who was sitting, selling pieces of turds that he made into ice pops and he was he really thought people are going to want turds that are fucking ice pops and he grew this massive empire for four years people thought it was funny and business is fucking booming but then all of a sudden it goes sour and people go well look how many look how many jobs are in this turd market we can't just let the turd market go sour and so they bail him out so that he's around so you got another four years of fucking turd market yeah it's also (laughs) 
like I one Austrian thing that I that I don't know is very helpful is that um, just, just sort of the way that growth is described and allocators like that. Like my conception of GDP growth, for example, is that there are ten people basically in any given decade that really drive growth. Okay. Right? So, yeah, so that makes sense. You got you got you, one you got like one Jeff Bezos who yeah. does something extraordinary. You got one Rockefeller. You got one. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, like, do we care about allowing the average strong allocator to allocate? Like, yeah, of course. I would much rather that happen. But if you had to choose between the average guy and making sure that this elite group of potential, let's say, ten thousand in the world geniuses, of which only ten are actually going to do it. What you want is you want these guys to have all the freedom in the world to make all the mistakes that they want to really drive the next world that we're going to be living into. So if you have a company, um, so, so part of this is that part of them is just they're strong companies who are able to attract talent. But if you have Google, for example, Google plus Facebook are hiring every single smart kid in every country, right? But like the University of Water. Lou, which is one school that I attend, is one of the best schools for technology in the world. It's uh, Google recruits there, Apple recruits there, Facebook. Everyone in, in Silicon Valley recruits there. Well, because of that, you're having a lot of genius kids that are going to those places and making $200,000 a year out of school. Good for them and getting all their food costs covered. Good for them. And then they keep working there and then they keep working there and they never start the business that could have been the really cool thing. And you see the same thing at every single school. So you have the smart people there, and then you also have smart people that are trapped as lawyers and accountants because they're trying to deal with some regulatory code. Right. All right. right. So I'm we just, up, yeah, in general, have so like sure. this frozen world of smart people. So if you don't allow things to burn out, and if you don't cut regulation, then you freeze all the smart people in place, and nothing good happens. Well, that that's what I uh, I made that argument. You guys can go check it out. And uh, when I was doing. Uh, Rob's newsroom, the last episode was about the Fed. And I said, since uh, if you look at the money laundering, since money goes to Wall Street first and the banks first, it's worth the most. So there's a brain drain where the smartest people go to work on Wall Street because since they get first access to money, it's worth more, which is what you're describing with these other zombie companies that we keep alive. Dude, this was fucking fascinating. I'm coming up against the battery on my computer, but I, I'm swear okay. I'm going to read more about the uh, I'm going to self-educate a little bit more and we'll jam out about this again. I appreciate it. Sounds good. Thank you for having me.